If you're ready this morning, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles again at John chapter number six. We were in John six last week, and I told you that there were a couple more things that Jesus says uh, that, that I wanted to go into. Um, if you're visiting with us, we're doing a series at the moment in the Gospel of John. And uh, we're looking at how John unpacks Jesus for us, how John is revealing Jesus to us. And that is honestly the prayer that I have had for our church right from the beginning. I said, God, if nothing else, if we fail at everything else, if our worship is horrible, if the preaching is average, if, if, if everything that we do is just so, so, let this one thing be true, let us see the face of Jesus. Even through the imperfection, even through the, the flawedness of, of it all, let us see Jesus, the face of Jesus. And when I've read the Bible in my life, more than seeing information and, and historical accounts, what I've seen is Jesus. I've seen Jesus stand up out of scripture, become real to me, and I've been able to experience him through the word. Because the word is not just a book. The Bible that we read is not just as an account. It's not just a historical artifact or, you know, an artifact of social history. This is actually living. It's alive, the Bible says. And and God declares that this is, this is me, this is my word, it's my spirit. And, and this is one of the ways that we just get to connect with God. And, and we connect with him not because of the rules that we read in here, not because of the principles that we find in here, not because we find some good life hacks. Have you seen those, those posts on life hacks? They're addicting. I, uh, you, know, you, you, you never knew that you could do stuff like that. And sometimes people read the Bible like a life hack. they like, oh, my word, I could do that, and that would help. And, and that's all great, but that's not where the life comes from. The life in here is Jesus, and we see Jesus. And John says, I want you to see Jesus with me. And that's why we've been doing this series, because if I'm going to equip us as a church, if we're going to be equipped as a church, we're only going to be equipped as much as we grow in faith in Jesus and in the gospel and what he's done for us. So that's why we love the Bible. That's why we love Jesus. That's why we love the gospel of John. And uh, so we've been working through it, and we're here in John chapter number 6, again. And last week we saw how Jesus fed the multitudes. So he's sitting up on a hill and thousands of people are coming towards him. And Jesus is sitting with his disciples, just watching the multitudes coming over the hills, just like ants crawling over the hills. And, 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 and Jesus turns to Philip and says, Philip, where will we find bread? Where will we buy bread for these people? And Philip is really, really nervous. He checks his bank account. He checks his wallet. He opens up his, his banking app and he realizes, I don't have enough to buy bread for all of these people. And, uh, and so he says to Jesus, I don't know, even if we had, you know, eight months worth of pay, everybody would just get a little piece of bread. And, uh, and ultimately what Jesus shows him is, I am God, I am the Savior, I don't need your much in order to do miraculous things. Jesus com is completely self-sufficient as God. And so he uses the platform of just a couple of loaves and, and, and a few fish to feed multitudes. They eat the bread and they eat of the fish, and the Bible says they ate their full, and there were still 12 fragments of bread picked up afterwards. And this is Jesus just declaring, I am the bread of life. I, I didn't just come to bring you bread, but I came to actually be the bread for you. I came to not just give you some tips on how to live a better life, I came to be life for you. And that's what we looked at, at last week, um, and we saw how Jesus saves us, in our starvation, our desperate hunger, and fulfills the deepest hunger that we have, the deepest thirst that we have, that thirst for meaning, that thirst for purpose, that thirst for truth. He fulfills us. And John is showing us how Jesus is the one. And so the disciples, the, the, everybody's eaten, they picked up the bread, they get into the boat, they're waiting for Jesus, a storm rises up, they get pushed across the sea, and, uh, and, and the next thing they see Jesus walking on the water. Because just like he was present in their hunger, he's present in their danger. And when we're facing the storms of life, Jesus walks on water to be with you. He's in our boat. And we said last week, the bread was in the boat. And, uh, and, we, and we were able, we can know that Jesus is with us through all of that. So he gets into the boat and they're on the other side. And uh, that's where they obviously get out. And now we pick up the story there. And I want to I look at Jesus' response to the people after this, uh, the day after the, uh, the feeding of the multitudes. It's in John 6, verse 22. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them up at John 6, verse 22. And I'm just going to read the first two verses to start off with from 22 to 24. It says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea 
saw that, he, that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So in other words, the people are looking for Jesus. He's, he's kind of removed himself from them and they've been all around. They, they stayed in that area, but they realized only one boat left and we know Jesus didn't get in that boat. So he must be around somewhere. He must be here in this vicinity. He must be praying somewhere. And so people are just waiting to see more of Jesus. And, uh, and they knew that the disciples had gone away alone. Verse 23 says, Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So now it's not just, it's not just uh, the people that were there, but this miracle, this miraculous thing that's happened is starting to spread throughout the, the regions. And people are getting into their boats saying, hey, we've got to head over to that side because there are miraculous things happening there. Jesus is feeding people. There's this amazing bread. Everybody's ear. It's just, get, let's get in the boat. Let's go see if we can find Jesus. And all of the, these crowds, and there was already a crowd of, most scholars believe, between 10 and 20,000 people there. And now more and more people are arriving after this miracle to see Jesus. Verse 24 says, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus, seeking Jesus. They, they, they themselves said, okay, he's not here. Let's go find him. They get into the boats and they cross over to the other side seeking Jesus. I'm going to pray for us this morning and, uh, and then we're going to chat about this, the rest of this chapter together. Father, we thank you so much this morning that uh, you are the one who came in search of us. We thank you, Father God, that even though we might be the ones running away, even though we might be the ones that are struggling to connect with you, that you pursue us, Lord. And we thank you this morning that we, however we came to be here and whatever our understanding is of you, that this morning, God, you can offer us that bread. We thank you that that's an open invitation for us to be a part of the life of Jesus. And, and we're here this morning because you've called us. We're here this morning because the Father has destined for us to be here so that you could speak to us and, and, and save us, God. We thank you for the saving work that you've done in our lives and the fact that you've taken the veil that was over our faces. You've taken it away. And we get to behold you face to face. We get to see the glory of the Lord. So we just pray this morning, Jesus, in humility, that you would just speak to us, that you would make your word known to us, and that you would encourage us in our faith. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I don't know if any of you have ever been starstruck. Anybody here ever been starstruck? Like when you really, really, uh, uh, you know, admire somebody for what they do, whether it's an actor or an actress or a sports personality or a TV personality or somebody that you just know very well and look up to perhaps in a specific field and you then get to meet them and, uh, and, and you find yourself being the most awkward human being on planet earth in their presence. Like you completely forget how to speak. You f completely forget how to interact like a normal human being. All right. So uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been starstruck in this way, um, but I was, as I was writing this, I was thinking about a time when uh, there was a song that became big on the radio. Uh, I'm, I'm talking way back, 1996, 1997, and the song was called Sexy Eyes. Anybody remember Sexy Eyes? Please do not sing it. It's forbidden in this church, but you're all singing in your head right now, and I apologize for that. I, I sincerely apologize. Um, but uh, there was a song that went big by an artist called Wigfield out of Denmark, and uh, she wrote the song Sexy Eyes, kind of like a, a Euro dance kind of pop song. And, uh, and so my mom at that time actually owned a radio station, and we were interviewing Wigfield at the radio station, and I was there in my mom's office when she arrived. And so she was in the office next door and my mom said, Wigfield is here. The song, is, I mean, the song at that time was charting. It was so big. And she was like, just go over and say hello. And, uh, and so I was, you know, maybe 13, 14 years old, but I wanted to go and, and say hello. And I, and I walked into the office next door and I was like, hi. And I shook her hand and then I just walked away. I, that was it. Like I've met, I've met Wigfield. I've met Wigfield, you know. This is pre-selfie days, otherwise I might have asked for a selfie, but I didn't know what to say. And it was so obvious that I basically fled. You know, it wasn't like I left, I fled. And uh, the office, the side of the office was glass and she actually watched me walk away. Like I, I could feel her watching me being like, you know, and, and it's, just, it's just difficult when you come into contact with people. We're often, as people, we're starstruck easily. Uh, we think we're not until we get into the presence of some people that are very influential. And, and then it's difficult for us. And I can imagine that one of the hardest things about being very wealthy or famous or, or influential is finding true friends. Like people that 
would just genuinely want to be in your life because they care about you. Because people are, are so attracted to power and influence and, and, and so hungry for significance that they'll run after anybody who seems to look like significance, seems to have a taste of power in their lives. People would flock around them and, and, uh, and, and just want to be in their lives. And it's difficult for those people to know, I can imagine, uh, whether those relationships are genuine and whether they are true. Whether they're based on, on who those people are, uh, you know, in and of themselves, as opposed to what they can do for the people that are in their lives. Because that's what it be- all becomes all about. I've got a, a friend who uh, became a professional sportsman and has made millions and millions of dollars. And all of his, his whole life, the whole way that he conducts his relationships changed because so many people now all of a sudden they never cared about him before but now that he's uh, so well known and that he's making so much money everybody just wants a piece of him everybody just wants some of his money like they're almost entitled to it and uh, and and I've seen how difficult it is for him in his situation to uh, to deal with that so when people like a-list celebrities or, or wealthy entrepreneurs or professional sportsmen or, or women, or, or even very influential pastors, if you spoke to them, you'd find out that they are some of the loneliest people around. They're some of the loneliest people around because they just don't have genuine relationships or, or genuine friends. People are often willing to commit to you only as far as their selfishness extends, like what they wanna get from you. And when you can no longer do something for them, then they no longer want to be in your life. And this is just life. And we all, we all experience that in some way or another where, where people are in our lives for a season because they feel it's going to benefit them in some other way, and then they remove themselves. But that's obviously not, and I'm sure we can all agree on this this morning, that's obviously not what a real relationship looks like, right? I mean, that's not what a relationship, a relationship is not what you can get out of it. A relationship is not about how you can be enriched by yourself and your own personal desires. A relationship is when you recognize the truth of who a person is. And you want to be involved and united with that person because of who they are and not because of what you can get. That's a genuine relationship. That's when relationships become real, when they become authentic. So as the ministry of Jesus was unfolding, we've looked now from John chapter number one and, and how he did the, 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 the miracle at the wedding and, and more and more miracles have been happening and these signs that God was doing through Jesus to show, to show the glory of God, to reveal the glory of Jesus, to reveal the purpose of Jesus, to reveal why God sent Jesus. And as this is happening, as the glory of God is being revealed in and through Jesus, we see that he just becomes famous. Just has like, people are just flocking. Can you imagine like something happens, you do some ministry on the other side of the ocean and people jump into boats to just come and find you. You're just being pursued by the multitudes. There were already thousands of people there yesterday. And now more and more people are showing up looking for Jesus after he had fed the multitudes. Jesus had become pretty famous and they're all hoping to catch a glimpse of him, maybe take a selfie with him or sketch a selfie, whatever they did back then, just, hey, can, I, can you just stand still for four and a half hours, just quick, you know? And, um, and, and they, just, they just want to be associated with Jesus in some way, catch a glimpse, hear something that he would say. The Bible says that they, they were seeking Jesus. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably heard the phrase, seeking Jesus. We gotta seek Jesus, we gotta seek the Lord, we gotta, we gotta pursue God, we gotta chase God. And, and this idea that we've gotta run after God and, and find Him and seek Him and, 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 and look for Him. And there is a, a context in which that is absolutely godly and scriptural and true, but there is also a context which Jesus shows us now in which we're lying to ourselves about our reasons for going after Jesus. We're lying to ourselves about why we're actually looking for Jesus. These people were seeking Jesus, and then when they find him in Capernaum on the other side, Jesus is there, and he starts teaching. He starts speaking to them. And we see this in John 6, verse 25. I want to read it to you. John 6, verse 25 says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus doesn't answer the question about when he came. He says this, 
Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, not because you really believe in who I am, not because you really saw the glory of God, not because you're starting to understand who I am and what I've come to do for you, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're looking for me because you just, the bread was good. Now, I don't know exactly what the bread tasted like, but I can imagine something like an artisanal Vovotello kind of bread, right? And this is, and this is, what, uh, this is what they tasted. And they're like, man, that bread is good. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? We are, it's morning. Maybe who's got some loaves? Who's got some fish? Let's go round two. Let's, let's just keep doing this. And so they come after Jesus. And Jesus is like, you're not coming after me because you really know who I am. Because you're seeing the signs and your heart is opening up to your desperate state and your desperate need of me. You're coming because you had some good food. He continues by saying, do not work for the food that perishes. Don't, don't run after me because you're looking for stuff that's going to perish. But for the food that endures to eternal life. Come to me because you're looking for truth. Come to me because you're looking for meaning. Come to me because you're looking for salvation. Which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus is saying, I am the one. I'm the one that God sent into this world. When you come after me, please don't do it because you want some bread. Please understand that what I came to bring you is more than than temporary satisfaction, more than just some bread in your bellies. The Bible speaks about uh, people in, in one place in Scripture, it says their belly is their God. Just whatever they crave, just whatever they desire, just whatever they want, that's their God. That's, that's who they ultimately worship. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Like, What, what, what should we be doing there? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. I'll get back to that because that's just one of the most mind-blowing scriptures and answers that Jesus has ever given. What must we do to be doing the works of God? This is how, believe. Believe in him whom he sent. So Jesus is saying, what I need you to do when you come to me, when you seek after me, is to recognize who I truly am. What Jesus is saying to the people in this instance and in this moment is that he doesn't want us to pursue him as a mere add-on to our lives. Because that's what people do. They simply add Jesus on to a predetermined framework and philosophy by which they've already decided they're going to live their lives. We've already decided what we believe is true and what isn't true. We've already decided uh, the kind of life that we want to live and don't want to live. We already decided where we want to go in life and where we don't want to go. And it's preset. And all we're saying is, God, will you bless my plans? God, will you come and, and, and affirm what I've already decided for myself is the life that I want to lead? And Jesus is saying, you're not seeking me because of who I truly am. You're not laying your life down or submitting to me as Lord. You just want an add-on. Like coming to church on a Sunday is just something that we do because it's part of our healthy, maybe you've got a little chart up in your house, like how to live a healthy life. And that healthy life is that you should exercise, you should eat well, you should, you should have a dog and love it like a human. You should, you should, I'm just talking about people in Lone Hill specifically, but you know, you should, you should do all of these things. You should give to charity. You should, you know, volunteer at the SPCA. You should, and then also, you know, if it's, if it's a church that, you know, does the right thing, says the right things, you should go to that church as well, because it's just spiritually, you just want to be connected but it just becomes another self-help compartment in your life. You're not coming to Jesus saying, everything that I have is yours. You are the Lord of my life. I'm submitting everything about me to you. And Jesus calls us out on it. <laughs> it's because of his love that he does this. He just calls us out. He's like, you just see me as an attachment, an accessory to make the rest of your outfit look good. That's what you've relegated me to. And Jesus is like, you can't have me that way. You can't have me that way. You can only have me one way. That's his Lord. 
You can't decide what to do, to do with me. I decide what to do with you. This is, we're coming to the creator of heaven and earth. So Jesus says that's not really worship. That's not what it really means to worship Jesus or to have faith. To have faith in Jesus doesn't mean being a fan of Jesus. It doesn't mean uh, cheering him on and saying, oh, this stuff Jesus used to say, that was so good. There's a difference between being a fan and being a follower. And God wants us to be followers where we lay it all down and, and, and we follow him. He says, don't work for the food that perishes. And we work so hard pursuing earthly things. We work so hard running after things day in and day out. Our minds, without realizing it, become consumed with what this world tells us we need. What this world tells us we have to drive in order to be significant or to be worth something. What we have to live in, what our house should look like, what our, what our appearance should be, and, uh, and what, what our social standing should be. The, the world very much dictates to us our values. And what Jesus is saying is, I want to I give you a new set of values. I want you to see things according to the kingdom, according to the gospel. I want you to understand your worth apart from these earthly things. Don't spend all of your years working for things that will perish and fade away. Don't spend all of your money on enriching yourself and on getting the things that make you feel better about your own life because what you're doing is you're pursuing and working for a food that perishes. It doesn't last. Because instead, understand that in me is life. And that life is the light of men. There's so many philosophies floating around. And you'll find that most people, when you talk to them about faith or, or, or the, the foundation from which they live their lives, their core values, it's like this conglomeration of things badly attached and badly mixed together of different worldviews and philosophies of of, of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And these kinds of people are willing to accept Jesus as long as he fits their current worldview. As long as he fits in with what they've already decided is accepted in society. As long as this Jesus never says anything to offend anyone. You know, just kind of like a, a, a hippie Jesus or, or maybe today a hipster Jesus that just, you know, just does, just, it's just, it's, it's a kind of Jesus that isn't strong, that isn't willing to offend, that isn't willing to call us out on stuff. Just Jesus, will you please give me the stamp of approval on whatever I've decided to do? Because surely that's what it means to be a God of love. See, our world has decided what love really looks like and what love really looks like in our world is to never call anybody out on anything. But I have got kids and I love my kids with everything that I am. And I call them out on stuff a lot. I call them out on stuff because I love them, because I want more for them, because I wanna see them fulfill the potential that God has placed inside of them. If you genuinely care about somebody, you wouldn't watch them walk away from things that are true. And so sometimes it requires a little bit of, of offense. The gospel has this way of offending. Ultimately, what it comes down to is that rather than allowing God to take us by his grace, by his goodness, by his love, and that's what he proves right up front. He proves that whatever I want to do in your life, I want to do it because I love you. Contrary to what people might believe in today's day and age, God is not trying to shove you into a box. God is not trying to cut off all of your edges so that you just become this generic thing and then shove you into a predetermined mold. No, God walks an individual journey with each of us and he loves us as we are because he created us that way. He looks at us knowing us, but also knowing the areas that we need change. And what God wants to do, and we see this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, is that he wants to take us and transform us into the image of, of Christ. He wants to transform us into his image. That's a part of our sanctification. And if you're here, it's because God is, is doing that transforming work. But what we do is we take God 
and we turn him into our image. Oh, God wouldn't do that because, because I wouldn't do that. We bring God's standards of, of righteousness and love and, and, and justice, and we bring it down to our human precepts of morality and, and current worldview. And we say, God, this is what you should be like. But God is God. He's the creator. And what Jesus is, is saying to these people is that I don't want to be just another celeb that you loosely follow on Instagram, that you loosely support. I want a real relationship with you. I've come here for more than your entertainment. I've come here to save you. I've come here to be more than just an addition to your lives. I've come here to be new life to you, a brand new life. Not, not just a changed life. The gospel isn't about a changed life. It's about a new life, an exchanged life. So the gospel, which is the message about what Jesus has done for us, is not an add-on. It's not an accessory. You can't accept it in part. Trusting God means accepting everything that he has for you, taking a hold of, of everything that he has for you, and it is all or nothing. Genuine faith in Jesus is all or nothing. I remember reading a book by Charles Spurgeon called It's All of Grace. It's all of grace. It's all of what God has done for us. Jesus describes it like this when he speaks about the parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew 13 verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, you see, when you discover the grace of God and, and what the gospel has done, when you discover the, the sacrifice of Jesus and what it means for our lives, it inspires something in you, the joy that rises up. Like having found something that you've been looking for all of your life, and here it is, and it's in this field. And Jesus says, the one who finds the kingdom, who finds the truth, who recognizes who I am, it's like a person who found that treasure hidden in a field. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I'm willing to let go of every other preconceived idea, every other notion, every other thing I found my significance in to get that hold of that treasure, to lay a hold of that. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. He has the seeking again, seeking fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, when we hear the call of Jesus in our lives, it moves us to lay everything else that we've hold onto, held onto down, to lay it all down. When Jesus went along the Sea of Galilee and he found uh, James and his brother John with their father Zebedee and they were mending their nets, Jesus walks up to them and he doesn't make a suggestion. He says, come and follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. In that moment, he, he declares that walking after me changes everything about your destiny. Everything about the path that you were on. Following Jesus means a complete change in direction. And it says immediately, it throws the word in there, immediately they left their nets and their dad. Now that was their livelihood. They used those nets to catch the fish which fed them. They depended on, the, on their dad and his business and his boat and, and his involvement in their lives. They depended upon him for their life. And Jesus says, leave it all behind and follow me. And it says immediately they left their nets and they walked after Jesus. They followed on after Jesus. It calls us to trust only in him and to let go of other things that we look to for, for significance. Now, you might not be fishing in a boat and you might not have nets for your, every, for your everyday life, but this happens in our hearts. And that's what I want us to recognize this morning. This happens in our hearts every day. And for each of us, it might be a little bit different, but all of us find security, if we're honest with ourselves, in things that are not Jesus. That's why we get so panicky when our bank account dips. That's why we get so panicky when we get, a, a, you know, a final notice. That's why we get so panicky when, when a relationship seems to be going awry. Because we find our security in things we're not trusting in Jesus. 
we find our security in things that are not Jesus, our significance, in our friends, in our, in our money, in our skills, in our talents. That's where we derive our sense of self-worth from. So we come to church and we say, it's all about Jesus. Yes, it's all about Jesus. That's a great message. I believe that. But in practical everyday life, we've turned to other saviors. We've turned to other saviors. And so Jesus calls us to a walk away from the safety that we could get for ourselves, that we could gain for ourselves in all of this, the perfect life that we try and create for ourselves to walk away from the safety. Following Jesus is not safe. It is the least safe thing that you could possibly do in earthly terms. But why do we do it? Why did Peter get out the boat to walk on water? Because we trust the one that's calling us. Because we've recognized him not as an addition, but as Lord, as the creator, as the one who commands the winds and the waves. Paul says this in Philippians 3 in a letter to the church in Philippi. He says in 3 verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Anything that I thought was kind of something adding to my life, significant to my life, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth. The surpassing worth. This is just worth more. This is that treasure in the field. It's worth more than anything I could say for myself. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Everything else is rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this. I want to be found in him. I want to have faith in him. I don't want to have an addition. I want to be found in him. When you look at me, when God looks at me, I want to be found in Christ. When he returns, I'll be in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not by what I could do uh, and how many principles I could follow and how, what a good person I could be. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You want to have the life that God has for you. Stop working for your own righteousness and recognize that Jesus is the righteousness of God for us. That's how you recognize. Out of all the things that are difficult for us to walk away from in this life, the hardest thing for us to walk away from is ourselves. Because <laughs> you talk about being starstruck. You talk about being overwhelmed by others. Can I tell you who our greatest idols are? Ourselves. You are your own greatest idol. And ultimately, we're tempted to worship ourselves more than what we worship and trust in Jesus. And along with that comes this deep inner desire that's just part of our sinful nature where we do not want to trust anyone else for salvation. We want to save ourselves. We want to be our own saviors. Charles Spurgeon says, every man is born a Pharisee. And the Bible tells us in Romans 10 that the, the Pharisees did not submit to the righteousness that comes from God through Jesus because they wanted to establish their own righteousness. That's a Pharisee. That's why we're so drawn to follow the law. But the Bible is very clear that we cannot save ourselves and we cannot keep ourselves saved. It's not in us. Paul writes and he says, you started in the spirit. You started by God's grace, just touching your life and changing it. Why do you now think that you'll be made perfect in the flesh? You see, we talk about spirit and flesh oftentimes. And people used to always relate things that are on the spirit are things that are good and things that are in the flesh are things that are bad. But you know that most of the things that we do that are good things are done in the flesh. I remember watching my saying that your flesh is so desperate to stay alive. So desperate to not be crucified like Jesus calls us to crucify our flesh. 
that it would do anything, even obey God, in order to stay alive. Your flesh ultimately goes into undercover mode. It's like, hey, let's go to church. Your flesh, like, hey, let's go to church. Hey, let's worship this morning. Let's raise our hands. Let's sing. Let's pray some prayers. Come on, just don't crucify me. But as long as you're doing it to save yourself, it's still hostility towards God. There's no life in it. There's no life in it. That's why the Bible says anything that does not come from faith is sin. In any moment where you're trusting in yourself rather than God, even if it is to do the best thing you've ever done, it's sin because you've not come to Jesus and his truth as the Lord of our lives. I remember like, uh, 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 as a young pastor, I had this, this thing about death to self. I mean, come on, death to self is such a great sermon. It's such a great thing to put like on Facebook or whatever, because people just be like, 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 because it's so amazing and we just don't know how to do it. And, and so it is so easy to get up and preach. We've got to die to ourselves. And everybody says, yeah. And then we're like, how do we do it? We don't know. Just keep trying. And I remember sitting after a Sunday evening service with a group of people after church and we were talking about the subject and, and sounding very, very noble and very godly. I was talking about death to self and dying to self. And, and there was this couple sitting there and they turned to me and they said, like, just a quick question. How do we do that? Like, how do we die to ourselves? And sitting there, I was just, I, I honestly was speechless. I didn't have an answer. I, the best I could come up with was, I don't know, maybe I'm still figuring that out. I'll get back to you. But maybe what we should do is just every day take opportunities to deny yourself. Like, you know, you want a piece of cake at Puppuccino's after church. Don't have it. Just deny yourself. You know, you want to swear at the taxi that just cut you off in traffic. Just wave and smile and, and pray for him. You know, just that's how you die of yourself. That's the best thing I could come up with. That was before God had really revealed the gospel to me. And when I understood the gospel, when I understood what it is that Jesus came to do for me, I understood that dying to yourself means trusting in Jesus. It's faith. It's faith. It's believing that he is the one who saves you more than what you can save yourself. You see, the people came to Jesus and they said, what must we do to do the works of God? That is a question asked in the flesh because they're saying, what do we need to do in our own selves to be good enough for God to accept us as we do the works of God? And Jesus says, if you want to do the work of God, let me tell you the work of God. Believe in him whom he sent. You want to do the works of God? Believe in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Lay down your own strength. Stop trying to earn and to achieve and trust that Jesus is enough. You see, many times when we're trying to die of ourselves, what we're actually doing through those works we do in order to crucify ourselves is resurrecting ourselves. Our flesh is becoming stronger, not weaker. It's the moment that you come to where you say, I can't do this, Jesus. That's the moment when you start to enter into true faith. Allow Jesus to save you. I remember preaching at a school and saying, saying to the school, if Jesus has saved you, stop trying to save yourself. <laughs> Trust in what he has done for you. Believe in what he has done for you. So a couple of years later, that same couple, after God had just revealed the gospel to me, that same couple sitting in the front as I'm preaching, and I actually brought them up. I said, two years ago, you asked me this question. I didn't have an answer for you. Today, I have an answer for you. Believe in him whom he sent. That's how you die to yourself. Stop trying to save yourself and live life on your own terms. Romans 11 verse 6 says, And if it is by grace, then it is no longer of works. If we are saved by the grace, which is the free gift of God, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If I gave somebody a gift and then they worked for the gift I gave them, it's no longer a gift, it's a salary. It's a wage. It's a transaction. 
So Paul writing in Romans says that our salvation, our connection with God is based on what he has done for us, not on what we can do for him. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, if we're saying that it's of works, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So it's all or nothing. Do you see this? It's all or nothing. It's either all of grace or it's all of works, but it can't be a little bit of grace and a little bit of works. It's either all of Jesus and his salvation and who he is, or it's all of us working for our own salvation and paying for our own sins, but it can't be a little bit of Jesus's grace and a little bit of our own self-righteousness because self-righteousness is the same, even worse as unrighteousness. So it's either all of Jesus or it's all of us. It's either all of grace or it's all of works. Either we come to him as the savior, as Lord, or we're not coming to him at all. You either trust him to save you or you're trusting in yourself. That's where we're at. That's what the gospel is. So in the little bit of time that we have left, I want to look at just the discourse that goes further as Jesus then begins to say a few things that offend some people. Because he's saying, you can't have me as just an addition to your life. You can't have me just on the side. John 6 verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Eternal life comes from faith in Jesus. I am, he says, the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. He's talking about the law a little bit earlier. There's not enough time to go through the whole thing, but, but a little bit earlier, he says, Mo, the people of, with, with Moses, they got manna in heaven, but Moses did not give you the bread that came from heaven. The law is not the life. Life is not in principles. Life is not in the law. Life is not in following rules. Life is in Jesus. He, get, he says that those that were in the wilderness, your fathers, they ate the manna, the bread that came from heaven, but they died at the end of the day. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it of it and not die. I'm not here to give you something that's going to perish. I'm here to give you something eternal. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'm going to give up my flesh on the cross. That's the bread that I give. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Which is a strange concept. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. We dealt with a thirsty woman in John 4. Now we're the, the hungry people. He goes, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. That is the most unseeker-sensitive message preached in the history of mankind. Can you imagine we, we had Jesus as a guest speaker here this morning, and he comes up and he goes, hey, you just need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and then you'll have life. But anything else, it's going to perish. But in that is life. And what Jesus is saying to the people in this moment, these people that came after him because they were looking for bread, is they say it's not enough just to believe some things about Jesus. It's not enough just to adhere to his teachings or to, or to try and walk in his footsteps or to look at him and go, oh, God is so great. It's not enough. What we need in order to have eternal life is to be united with him through faith. That's what Jesus was saying. How do we eat the flesh? How do we drink the blood? By putting our faith in Jesus. That's what communion is all about. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out on the cross. If you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, I abide in you and you abide in me. 
In other words, we make everything about our lives. Everything about our lives. About what Jesus has done for us. My worth, my significance, my security. What I, what I adhere to, what I don't. It's all based on what Jesus has done for me. It comes down to the cross. Is your faith in me? Or is it in yourself and a little bit of me? Jesus says, unless you eat of the life that I have for you, you have no life in you. There's no life in religion. There's no life in a, in a set of principles. There's no life in a program. There's no life in a self-help 12-step thing that you've got to go through. There's no life in that. The life comes through when Jesus comes to the inside of us and resurrects us by his spirit. It's in Jesus. To be united with him through faith, to trust him for your life. This is true food and true drink. And Jesus, having said this, people are just confused. Even, even the disciples are a little bit offended. The last scripture, John 6 verse 60. It says, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. What, you, what you've said, Jesus, it's pretty difficult. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Like, does this offend you? That I'm calling you to partake in the life that I came to bring? Does it offend you? Because I say, eat my flesh and, and drink my blood and, and be united with faith. Do you take offense at this? Then he says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If putting your faith in Jesus offends you, imagine seeing him on the throne. Imagine that day when, when wanting to trust Jesus for your life, you're like, oh, why does this Jesus just want to be in my life? And why does he want to, why does he want to speak into things? And why does he want to call me out on stuff? Imagine how offended you will be the day where you see him in glory on the throne. Does this offend you? Not a seeker-sensitive message by Jesus. It is the Spirit, Jesus says, who gives life. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. I just love the fact that Jesus said these words. Your flesh is no help at all. It's the Spirit of God that gives life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Your faith's not truly in Jesus. And listen to this, verse 69. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus just calls us out. He doesn't want fans. He doesn't want Instagram followers. He doesn't want retweets on Twitter. He doesn't want high fives and, and, and banners. Jesus wants followers. Those that go, Jesus, without you, I'm lost. Without you, I'm lost. And Jesus preaches a message, and this makes me feel so better because at times in my life when I've preached messages, I've actually had people get up and walk out and you can see that it's in, it's in protest. Jesus goes, does this offend you? I came to give you life. And if your flesh needs to be offended in order for you to find life, I'm willing to do that. You see, some people proclaim to trust Jesus, but they're not willing to follow. And trusting means following. I'm the life. I'm the bread. Eat of my flesh. Drink of my blood. Be united with me through faith and I will save you. But many turned away and no longer walked with him. The next little bit I actually want to go to, I didn't put it in my notes, but it says there, He speaks to his disciples right at the end. 
He says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Then it says that there were some that, that walked away. After this, uh, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, the disciples, the true disciples, do you want to go away as well? Like, is this too much for you guys to bear that you need to come to me to find life? Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know why the disciples could say that? Because they left it all behind. Jesus is going, are you offended by how I call you out in your life on certain things? How I want to bring transformation? How I want to change your life and transform you? Are you offended by that? And Peter goes, no, because we've given it all up to follow you. We, we haven't held on to anything in our own strength. So do with our lives whatever it is that you want to do. We don't realize it, but that's the grace of God. That someone cares enough to want the best for us to want a genuine relationship with us. So when he calls us to follow him, let's not be a church filled with fans. Let's not be a church filled with, with, with adherence, filled with people just loosely connected. And if you're in that space today, and I wanna say this, if you're in that space today, it doesn't mean that you have to turn around and walk away. This is an opportunity for us to recognize how faithful God is to recognize how good he is and to trust him. It says many of his disciples turned and, and walked away, but it doesn't say all. It doesn't say all. And we know the how the glory of God was unfolded in the lives of those who simply said, okay, Jesus, my life is yours. Can we say that this morning? Can we say, Jesus, my life is yours? I'm not here to save myself. I'm not here to work for myself. I'm not here to, to design my own life. I'm here to say, Jesus, whatever you want, that's what I want. Like a child that trusts his father, trusts his mother. And we can trust him because he's good. Amen? He's good.